Hey, this is Bart Sharp, and this is Becoming Quantum Conscious on United Public Radio Network and UFO Paranormal Radio Network on 107.7 and 105.3. And we are broadcasting out of the beautiful city of New Orleans, Louisiana. And I am Bart Sharp from Austin, Texas. And our guest, Clark Strand, is from the Catskills in New York State, out in a cabin out in the woods someplace. <laughs> if you read his books, you'll get a really wonderful image of what that is. Also, I just wanted to mention that we are on Roku, uh, also Facebook, YouTube, and other platforms. So we're all over the world. And... Um, we just welcome everybody in to this program, uh, Becoming Quantum Conscious. And today with Clark Strand, who's an author of uh, many books and also editor, Zen Buddhist, um, a guy who walks in the dark. And his latest book is this. I want to get it up close. Waking Up to the Dark. And it's just a beautiful cover. And it looks like you're in the dark kind of when you <laughs> venture visually into this book, because that's so much about what this book is about. Mm. Uh, welcome, Clark Strand. I'm, I'm really happy you're here. Thanks, Bart. I'm so happy to be talking to you today and to your, to your viewers and listeners. Yes. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, and and they, they are really into a treat today because this book, I've read it twice. And I do, do not usually pick up a book and read it twice within a four-month period. However, this book is one that has some of the most profound information that is subtle, that slowly comes up and wakes you up, <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> oh, my God, what is that? Uh, it's, it's really wonderful. Uh, this is a journey about a man who walks in the dark, uh, driven to walk in the dark as a, somewhere in childhood to teenage years. And it becomes a part of his spiritual journey amongst other things, but it's always this connection he has to the earth. And it's a valid spiritual connection. Uh, one that hasn't been discussed uh, probably in modern times when we think about modern spirituality, but it's always been something people have used throughout who knows how long. Um, and uh, I wanted to start, I'm going to throw out some quotes from this book uh, because it's almost like prose in places that just opens you up to think, to be with the words and to let them unravel in your own consciousness. So this is the last paragraph of the book. It's a gospel according to darkness. And it says, as in the heavens, so it is on earth. I alone am, but I am not alone. For you are with me and within me. Your heartbeat is my heartbeat, and your breathing is mine. And of course, this is 
conversation between earth and the person i'm guessing what what response do you have uh, clark well those are those last three pages of the book uh, which you've drawn from here are the only uh, pages in the book that i didn't write uh, they are the words of Our Lady of Woodstock. And, ah. uh, you know, the whole book really is, uh, one way of looking at it is it's a very long introduction to a very short book. The, the, real, the real book is The Gospel According to the Dark, and it's the last three pages of the book. Mm. And, uh, you, know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe at some point in the show, I'll, I'll tell you the circumstances under which uh, those words came to me. But... Uh, for now, I'll say that, yeah, it is very much a conversation between uh, the earth and a, a listener, right? The, the yes. one, whoever reads these words, right, is receiving them directly uh, from, uh, you know, our mother, uh, the great mother. Sometimes she was called in more recent uh, uh, millennia. She's been called, uh, you know, the Virgin Mary and other figures. Yes. And, and uh, that's. And that's what we're talking about is this being that has many names. Yeah, that's right. And and it, it is of the earth. And like so many people are seeking these days, how do I have this profound spiritual connection? And they're trying to find it in so many ways. And for you, it's about being in the dark. Yeah. Well, it always has been, you know, uh, from the very beginning. I mean, I didn't really know what was going on when I first started waking up in the middle of the night, waking up to the dark, as it were, and uh, wandering around. I, I was a young boy. Well, I grew up down south in northern Alabama. We lived uh, a block away from a golf course. And uh, my parents, I think, maybe put me to bed not too long after dark. So I would lie in bed for about four hours sleeping, and then I would wake up. And uh, in the beginning, I just lay quietly in bed. But, you know, like any eight-year-old boy, I easily got bored. And so I began to wander around the house. From there, I, I stepped out onto the back deck to look at the stars. And then finally, I thought, well, why not? Nobody's telling me not to. Nobody else is awake. Uh, I'll just go out on the golf course. And so I started walking around eight years old on this golf course alone in the middle of the night. And I absolutely loved it. And I felt such peace or such a beauty. Uh, you know, I was alone, uh, but I never felt alone, never felt lonely. Um, mm. I continued doing this, you know, throughout my uh, childhood. By the time I was a teenager, we had moved to Atlanta, northwest Atlanta. Uh, the city back then, uh, you know, was not as much, wasn't as big a sprawl, as much of a sprawling metropolis as it is today. And so, uh, you know, just across the river, you could find, uh, you know, those big, heady, dark spaces in the hills. And I would wake in the middle of the night and walk out there. I continued into college. And when I became a Zen Buddhist monk in the 1980s, living in a remote monastery in the Catskill Mountains where the only light after dark was candlelight, there was nothing to keep me, you know, when the other monks had gone to bed to uh, you know, to getting up and wandering around the lake and the graveyard. And, you know, there was no electric light, 
you know, there was no electric light bulb for miles in any any direction. It's just per perfect darkness. Very beautiful. So, so was there something in this process? Because you've been doing this for, well, we don't want to tell your age, but you've been doing this <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. And also, we just want to tell the viewers and listeners, if you have questions for Clark, uh, just come on the chat and, and uh, put them out there. Uh, we, uh, we just wanted to welcome Kathy. She showed up. I just put her on. I'll put her back again. Welcome, Kathy, to the show. And uh, she's from Ontario, Canada. Mm. But I wanted to ask you a question. Do you think that your body has changed or your sensory systems have changed by being in the dark so much? Mm. Well, I, I don't think so. I, I wouldn't quite describe it as change. It's more of a reversion to our natural state. Uh, I didn't really know what was going on. You know, I just did this naturally. I, I always thought of myself as a bit eccentric, perhaps, you know, that I would do this. And not many people knew about it. I didn't talk to very many people about it. I think my Zen master, the abbot of the monastery, knew that I was getting up in the middle of the night and wandering around, you know, in the mountains, but he never said anything to me about it. Uh, but uh, so I really didn't have any context for it. And then uh, in the mid nineties, after I'd left the monastery and married and had children, uh, I discovered an article uh, written by a New York times journalist reporting on a study that had been done at the national Institute of health by a man named Thomas Ware. Thomas Ware was the guy who uh, basically discovered seasonal affective disorder. He was a specialist in uh, research on circadian rhythms. And he did a famous sleep study where he took uh, ordinary people off the streets of Bethesda, Maryland, and took them off all forms of artificial illumination for a month. Wow. And, and what he discovered was that for the first three weeks, Everybody slept for, on average, about an hour to an hour and a half longer, repaying what we're called the national sleep debt, right? Because Americans are chronically sleep deprived. But at week three, something happened to every member of the study, every subject. They all began to sleep for four hours and then wake to darkness for two hours of, of what we're at first called quiet rest. And then they would sleep for another four. And so they were sleeping eight hours, but now those eight hours were divided into, you know, what sleep scientists call bimodal sleep. What we're discovered was that prior to the industrial revolution, human beings all across the planet slept like this in two blocks. Wow. But the, but the big takeaway was what was happening in those two hours in the middle of the night. Ware discovered that his subjects were not completely asleep and not completely awake. He discovered that the hormone prolactin, which is the, uh, the chemical that uh, reaches elevated levels in nursing mothers, right, when they're nursing their babies. Uh, it's also the chemical that, uh, uh, you know, that, that elevates, that rises in the mm -hmm. bodies of birds when they are roosting on their nests. So it is the same chemical that keeps our body still while we're sleeping. What we're discovered was that if people wake up, you know, people who are keeping the lights on until midnight and then falling asleep for a restless six hours before they wake up and go to work, 
Those people, if they wake up in the middle of the night, their prolactin levels immediately fall. But yeah. if you give people the darkness that the body needs, what happens is you wake and your prolactin levels remain at sleep levels. So your body is deeply calm and your mind is awake. And so where subjects reported feeling a peace that they had never experienced before in their entire lives. And so what modern people tend to experience as insomnia, what some people informally call the hour of the wolf, right? That, mm -hmm. that, that fretful, you know, self-judgment and worry and anxiety and that worrying mind that people experience when they wake up and can't get back to sleep. We're discovered that if you, if you gave people enough darkness to work with, the body would reset itself to a, to a paleolithic pattern of sleep that was still hardwired in the human body. And it would produce an experience so different from the hour of the wolf, you might as well call it the hour of God, right? Mm. And, and maybe that's a lot in your attitude when you do wake up at those times. Like a lot of people are saying, well, something's wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, there's a lot of people who have adrenal fatigue. And, and I saw this with, uh, I was a school teacher. And a lot of the teachers, when they would get into this, the school year and the stress would be on. And, and, and as a teacher, it almost feels like you're constantly working all the time. Even when you go home, you still have that last work because teaching is a very absorbing profession. It takes, it takes a lot of intensity to do it and therefore hard to unwind from. Yeah. And these people would get up at four o'clock in the morning a lot. Yeah. But maybe if the attitude was like, there's nothing wrong with me and we would like be okay with that. Yeah. Maybe this would start to shift for a lot of people. Well, what, you know, uh, since Weir's uh, research came out, uh, uh, sleep scientists have discovered, and I, I talked to several of them in, re in my research for the book, and they told me that nowadays when people uh, come to them saying that they wake in the middle of the night, Mm -hmm. The first thing they do is they say, well, that's quite natural. So don't worry about it. Right. And most people, you know, most of these uh, sleep specialists told me that most of the people they tell that to go home and never come back again. <laughs> right. Because they go, oh, so, so I, don't need to worry. I don't need to worry about this. This is this is natural. They explain bimodal sleep. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what really is happening is that we are using, we, are, we have created a late assisted state of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. where, where we are extending the length of our days artificially, right? So yes. that we are compressing our sleep nights, like our work days into convenient eight hour blocks. But we're not meant to sleep that way. And it's, it's, it's hardwired into our body to sleep in two segments like this. Like we are programmed genetically to do that from, from you know, Paleolithic times for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. And, and so and, as you get older, the, your, 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 your metabolic force begins to weaken. So especially people in later, uh, middle, you know, middle age to old age, uh, they find that their resistance is lowered. They can no longer override 
that ancient pattern. And so they start to wake in the middle of the night. What's really happening is that they're just, their bodies are sort of giving up and reverting to the old pattern. Almost like it's a period of, of those few hours, because this is happening to me and, and this is really, really gets interesting. <laughs> Ever since I've read your book, it seems to be more actively happening. Mm. Uh, almost like that invitation is spotted up in my body is saying, pay attention. This is okay. Yeah. Uh, that you wake up at these times. For me, I do mantras. Yeah. And lay in bed. And me, and, me, me too. That's what I do. Yeah. Who am I? What is God? That's my favorite one. It's a mm. St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah. It's two Beautiful. questions. Who am I? And then mm. what is God? And you're, opening up those energies to mm. live inside of you. It's so yeah. simple that you can stay with it. Yeah, um, that's right. And, and, and your invitation is get up, be in the dark, maybe outside if you possibly can, um, and, and really commune with nature and the earth because that's a component that can open the spiritual side of you even more so. Yeah. Well, there are people who can and, and because of their life circumstances and there, there are people sure. who, can, who can't. Uh, a great many women read the book and said, well, I wish I could go out walking in the middle of the night, but they don't feel safe. And I completely mm -hmm. understand that. I mean, I'm six foot two. And, uh, you know, when I'm out walking in the middle of the night, you know, people, the, the occasional car that passes me tends to give me a wide berth. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a man or Frankenstein? I don't know. Yeah, right. So, so, you know, I don't, uh, uh, you know, if there's anything to fear in the dark, I guess they assume maybe it's me <laughs> because yeah. I'm, I'm out walking. But some people can, others can't. There are communities that uh, for thousands of years have created an environment that's sort of the perfect incubator for uh, this period that we call the hour of God. And these are uh, contemplative or monastic communities. Uh, part of my research in the book was to track down all the various different uh, extant or living forms of the hour of God in the various religious traditions and to talk to the people who still practiced them. So I talked to Hasidic Jews who rise in the middle of the night to uh, perform a practice called Hippodidut or a freeform dialogue talking talking out loud to God, usually outdoors, mm -hmm. like in a forest or a field. I talked to imams who would uh, wake for tahajud, uh, which is the uh, practice initiated by a Muhammad uh, that involved rising in the middle of the night to be with God. The belief among Muslims was that during the hour of, of God, you know, that gap between the first four hours and the second four hours of sleep was the time uh, that Allah came closest to the earth to listen to prayers. Mm. And I talked to people who pra practiced yoga nidra, uh, Buddhists who did the same thing. I had a correspondence with a Carthusian novice master. All right. This is the most strictly enclosed of the Catholic orders. And I believe the only Catholic order other than a few Carmelite uh, uh, convents here and there where they still rise for matins in the middle of the night to chant the Psalms, right? They go to sleep for four hours and they rise to chant the Psalms. So this same pattern 
existed in these contemplative communities yes. all over the world. And those are usually the only places that you can still find uh, this, this practice. But once upon a time, and not so long ago, uh, this was essentially a nightly meditation retreat for every homo sapiens on earth. People would naturally wake to this state of mind because they weren't extending, artificially extending the range of their waking consciousness with artificial illumination. And so they yes. naturally woke to this state, which, uh, you know, the writer of the book of Psalms, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the uh, author of the Song of Songs, which is a beautiful love poem in the Bible, uh, called, uh, described as, I sleep, but my heart is awake. Yes. I sleep, but my heart is awake. That was the, the way the, the lover uh, descri describes it to her beloved in the Song of Songs. That's, that, those are the words she uses to describe that state of mind that you wake to in the middle of the night. And, and so that, that, that is really wonderful stuff. And I, I wanted to add, if, if you are in a place in the world that is fairly warm weather, at night, you can just go out and sit on your porch and put your feet on the ground and say mantras and connect mm -hmm. with this being right. that we call right. Earth. Right. And, and, and one of the things that shows up for me, uh, as I, I'm a, I have a tendency to ask spontaneous questions as I listen to you, <laughs> is, you know, there's the reality of the connection to the sun and that we see during the daytime and that power of all of what the sun emanates and gives us, which is wonderful. But yeah. at night, it's a totally different reality and something else emerges. Yeah, it does. And a different reality that is so much about the earth. And there's, there's this great quote. And this is at the last chapter and, you know, you told me that you, you didn't write this last three pages. However, all I can say is it's really good. <laughs> that, that was what I thought when I first read them. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it is your book, even though you may not have written this. This is, this is you. This is so much about the book. It mm. says, um, I want to make sure I got this right. Okay. Be still, be silent, awaken to the hour of wonders when all things belong to the body of earth and sky. I am the substance of all before their making and the rest to which they return. Lift the stone from the earth and let it fall. It can only seek its mother. And, and to me, that's like, there's a connectedness with all things that we're starting to open up to in this intimacy with the earth. Yeah. And the more we're there, the more we acknowledge it, the more it grows inside of us to help yeah. with this journey that we're on. Right. right. Yeah. And, and, and from what I've understood, you, you wouldn't really call yourself a psychic or an intuitive or any of the things out there that's that's you're more like i am present i'm an editor i write books 
Right. I do these type of things that are very much here and now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't, you know, when, when, when the events described in this book uh, in the latter part of the book began to unfold, like the part of the book called the black Madonna and -hmm. then the gospel according to the dark, this began in the summer of 2011. And prior to that, I didn't have uh, one book in my vast spiritual library of of, uh, of world classics. You know, world that, that could classics. prepare you for that situation. No, that could prepare. <laughs> no, that could prepare me for it. I didn't have one book on the divine feminine. Even well, it, not saying that even, was even remotely interesting to me. Well, I like this. I would like to say this <laughs> about the third chapter. You know, this book is broken up in like a story of Clark Strand as a child and walking in a dart and, and those experiences. The second chapter, and I may be messing this up, but I'll do my best, is a lot of the studies, the logistics, kind of the philosophy of all of this. Yeah. But the third chapter, uh, Clark has a very direct physical experience with a Madonna being. Yeah. Uh, which I find his... And, and I'm not talking about somebody that is ethereal that you can see but not touch or you hear but don't see. This is someone he, he felt touched, experienced, had a conversation with many yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. In no, 2011. That's, that's right. Uh, summer of 2011. You know, Perdita likes to say, my wife, uh, his wife and fellow writer, uh, a co-author of The Way of the Rose, a book we wrote together. Yes, yes. This is a wonderful book about how to use the rosary. And it's not like a big Catholic background. This is looking in the exploration that the rosary is something much older, ancient, That's that right. is used to center people and bring them into a deeper state of consciousness with the beloved, the earth, right. Mother Mary, right. et cetera, et cetera. That's right. That's right. So Perdita, uh, you know, my wife and co-author, she liked to joke that um, after I left Zen Buddhism in 1990, I spent the next 20 years trying to get patriarchy right. <laughs> and, and, you know, I didn't, luck. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Like I was completely unaware. Like I couldn't see it. I couldn't see the the, the I, I couldn't frame that that experience like you know if you had said that to me I'd say what are you even talking about I'm just reading all the great classics of world religion trying to find something anything that holds up to the demands of the 21st century right I had developed a a kind of a motto uh, as part of a religious think tank for Newsweek. Uh, uh, Washington Post in the early 2000s, I de- developed a kind of a credo, uh, ecology, not theology. Mm. And I had gone back through all of these traditions. I had no, you know, I couldn't see that they were all patriarchal traditions, that that's what they had in common. I, mm-hmm. They just all seemed very different. And I thought that in one of them, I would find something, some kind of teaching that could prepare us for the challenges ahead, right? Species extinction, climate change, uh, you know, uh, resource depletion, vanishing water supplies, pollution, you know, the list goes on and on. Yes, yes. And uh, collapsing, you know, uh, uh, empires. And, 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 And here you are in this journey, 
with, you know, the dark and the Madonna and all of this stuff that is totally unique. I've never read about it. Not like this with somebody that is in the uh, modern world. Right. You know, maybe in the ancient world, yeah. but not yeah. in the modern world. Right. So I, I wasn't really prepared for this, to say the oh. least. Yeah, surprise. Yeah. So I just want to ask you a question. What do you think, you know, waking up to the dark and being this guy who does these walks, practices the rosary, you know, why do you think this happened to you? You know, you go from that very Zen Buddhist philosophy and then you have something very mystical happened that people would give their eye teeth to have. I got a radio show and you got the Madonna. I'm, <laughs> I'm really envious. <laughs> well, I, I, I get, I get asked this question a lot. And the answer is I, I have absolutely no idea. I will tell you a story though, that I think has some bearing <laughs> on it. They, um, uh, there is uh, a tradition, you know, in, in India, right? Uh, where uh, a person will find, will have a dream about the goddess inhabiting a rock that is to be found in a lake, usually, or a stream, a nearby pond or river. And that person will see in the dream where the stone or the rock is to be found. They will go, they'll retrieve the rock, they'll bring it back to their home, they'll make offerings to it and begin to pray. And the idea is the goddess is in the rock. And if the goddess uh, answers prayers, then she gets a statue. And if she answers more prayers, then she gets a, a little shrine. And if she answers even more prayers, she gets a temple. And this is how, you know, nearly all of the great temples to Kali, Mother Kali, right, were mm -hmm. established in Bengal. So there wow. was so there was a uh, there was a, a uh, anthropologist who went to Bengal to interview the people about this process, right? And at one point, she asked people, you know, who had had this sort of experience. Well, how did the goddess get into the stone? And they all answered the same way. They said, "How are we supposed to know the answer to a question like that?" <laughs> How, how are we supposed to know the answer to that? Who knows how the goddess gets in the stone? That's her business. She knows how to do it. We don't know how to do it. So that's really my answer. You know, uh, I have no idea. Um, you know, a, a, a sort of uh, irritable, overeducated, spiritual intellectual was hardly a, a, a clear choice, you know, for an apparition of the Virgin Mary, especially well, somebody who is completely done with religion, right? Well, and that and that's that's an interesting thing. It's like, you know, how we could almost see that some of the religions of this uh, world are almost too weird to believe in, yeah. and they have all kinds of flaws, but right. yet they work. People yep. have all of these great things happening. And it's just like the story you mentioned, maybe those people that, you know, found the rock, that built a shrine, they were part of that portal opening. And the yeah. portal opening was right. happening yeah. because it's it's a participation. Yeah. 
with everybody involved. Well, I will say this, and and I think that you know, if you read the the literature on uh, apparitions, you know, especially mm -hmm. apparitions of the Virgin Mary, uh, you know, there have been quite a few of them, you know, since yes. like in the modern age, since eighteen. I, I go to a few of them in France, and they're yeah, amazing. I'm sure. So if you read the literature, you often find, you know, that the apparitionists, you know, basically say what I've said is that they don't have a clue why, uh, you know, Our Lady appeared to them and spoke to them. They don't think about it very often. It's not the experience itself is so overwhelmingly convincing uh, that one stops thinking about such questions and trying to answer them uh, because, you know, her message, what she says, um, is the important thing and, and everything else is really just secondary. So you just sort of forget about everything else and just do that. Well, when you, when you start to go into why it happened, you're really going into your head. Yeah. And this is more of a visceral full body experience. Yeah. Really. I, I need to break a little bit to say mm -hmm. this is becoming quantum conscious on United Public Radio Network and UFO Paranormal Radio Network on 107.7, 105.3, and we're also on Roku. You can catch us on the cable world and see our pretty faces on television. Uh, that's why I wear a button-up shirt. And um, also on Facebook, YouTube, and various things. My name is Bart Sharp. Uh, I have a website called bartsharp.com and do spiritual tours to Southwest France on the path of Mary Magdalene, Jesus, and the, all the ancient energies there, Mary Magdalene France tours. You can find Clark Stan in this lovely book that he has written. Uh, there we go, Waking Up to the Dark. You can find this if you go to www.wayoftherose.org. And I have not put up the banner, to just give this um, ticker going on, but this is www.wayoftherose.com, no, .org, excuse me. And uh, this is a beautiful book on the rosary um, that he and his wife, Perdita Finn, wrote, and they alternate chapters. So you hear Perdita for a chapter, you hear Clark, and then through the book, you really can't tell who is who. And through their stories, they just take you on this mystical journey. Just as this book, Waking Up to the Dark, really does, takes you on this amazing mystical journey. And um, for this next part, um, I'm going to read another chapter. And this is one from the Black Madonna chapter There's uh, in this interaction. Uh, in the same way that everyone without exception has been born from a mother, everyone returns to the mother as well. She is our origin, her destination, and our present place of rest. We cannot take one step apart from her body before birth or after death, nor even while we are alive. She is the mother of all things, the living body of the world. Mm. And so, so much about this book is a reminder that we are connected to the earth 
And it's best we really get aware of that, that everything we do has a connection to that or is in the opposite direction or maybe not into that direction. Maybe yeah. that's a little bit strong. <laughs> but when we start to realize that, our whole consciousness starts to change. Yeah. You know, Bart, one of the uh, things that happened when the book was was uh, first published uh, back in 2015, the, the copy that you held up is uh, a reprint, recent reprint oh. of the book. But when the book was first published in 2015, uh, people who read it, I think, uh, often thought that they should get up and walk in the dark, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or that they should, uh, you know, basically unscrew all the light bulbs in their house and try to experience, you know, to total darkness after dusk, right? And uh, some people, I think, were maybe able to do that or they lived in circumstances where they could. Most people, uh, you know, couldn't. And so uh, I got a lot of very sort of melancholy, wistful uh, emails and letters from people saying, I would really love to, to go back to this state of consciousness. I, I feel it within myself when I wake at night and I long for it, but I don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. And so I began to think about uh, the darkness in a slightly different way. And I went back to the work of uh, a Jesuit uh, historian of technology who I had read uh, in my research for the book, a man named John Staudenmeyer. And Staudenmeyer gave a lecture uh, at, I think, Pennsylvania State University, a Boardman lecture that, you know, the title of which was Electric Lights Cast Long Shadows. And it was all about the loss of the holy dark. And Staudenmeyer's mm basic idea was that with higher and higher levels of artificial illumination <clears throat> over the past few thousand years, human beings have become progressively more and more cut off from the soul, more and more cut off from their spiritual nature. He believed <clears throat> that one of the things that artificial uh, light did like not just, you know, artificial light to read by in an office during the daytime, but, you know, stadium lights, uh, you know, billboard lights, floodlights, cities that are lit 24 hours a day, right? We're yes. talking about big lights, big city lights. He said one of the things they do is they, they convince us that everything can be seen or should be seen, that everything can be known everything can be made clear and everything ultimately that can be made clear can be understood and therefore controlled. Now, Staudenmeyer never quite got as far as stating it just this baldly, but the essence of his way of thinking on this subject was that light is primarily what fuels an anthropocentric way of thinking our modern anthropocentric, human-centered way of thinking, where humans are in charge or should be in charge, where human welfare is more important than anything else in the world, where our goal is ultimately just to redesign the whole planet so that it becomes a theme park open 24 hours a day for homo sapiens, right? Oh, yes. He believed, he believed that light was the thing that drove this impulse. 
So what I realized was that anything that short circuits that or takes us off of that treadmill, like meditation, mindfulness, right? Yoga. Uh, for some people, it's knitting. For some people, it's keeping a dream journal. There are mm. a lot of ways that we can tune in to a more numin this older, more numinous way of thinking and begin to to rebalance our lives so that they aren't we're not drunk on light as a culture, so that we're not so super saturated with it. It's so true. And uh, it's 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 a dichotomy between the intellect and rationale versus wisdom and intuition. Right. Uh, yeah. That we can connect to those things. Sympathetic nervous system versus parasympathetic nervous system right. is another way to, to state it. Yeah. Which is a, a, a deeper place. But I just like the idea that you bring down to this book that when you're in the dark and you're out and it can just be in your backyard and you have your feet on the ground, something emerges, something connects. Uh, it's very natural, very easy. Um, and, and then doing a meditation is actually a lot more work actually, because uh, <laughs> in some ways, because we both probably meditate a lot and we know what that discipline is yeah. that you steadily yeah. give to that right. and, and cultivate that interior reality. Well, you know, you mentioned mantra, Bart, that you wake in the middle of the night mm -hmm. and, and say mantra. And uh, one of the things that most of these um, practices had in common, I want to say all of them, I think maybe there were a couple that were silent, but most of them, nearly all of them involved uh, chanting or reciting mantras, like chanting the divine office, reciting the Psalms as a Catholic monk or nun would have done during the Middle Ages in the middle yes. of the night, right? Or uh, uh, chanting the Lotus Sutra for Buddhist priests observing this ritual even today in Japan. Uh, people rising to say Yoga Nidra, uh, you know, to, 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 to perform yoga nidra. There were uh, mantras uh, and various rituals that were associated with these practices. And the wonderful thing about these mantras is that they're as easy as just speaking, right? You don't have to uh, monitor your state of consciousness or try to modify it. You just fall into the easy rhythm of this, of this it, vo vocal uh, prayer. It, it does. And um, it also helps your mind have something to do yeah. while your body goes into this deeper state. That's right. I, I think, I think it's also, I mean, I do a lot of activations. I activate within the sun. Uh, I astral travel, I meditate with crystals. I meditate with power stones, like the people that are connecting with the goddess, but I'm, I haven't really contemplated it as a goddess. But all of what that does is activate vibrations in my body. There's so many ways that, that you can get there to have this wonderful reality. Right. I want to change the tune a little bit and go back to the Madonna. Um, and just ask a personal question. What did it feel like to be in her presence? What happened to you? 
Well, I, I described that, uh, you know, in, in the, I guess really that's, that's the primary subject of uh, part three of the book, The Black Madonna. And um, all I will say is that I, uh, I was really uh, unprepared uh, <laughs> to experience anything like this. I had never had uh, visions. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time meditating, certainly in a quiet monastery. And so I'd had a lot of spiritual experiences, but I'd never had anything that I would describe as a, a sort of a visionary uh, type of experience. In fact, as a Zen Buddhist monk and ultimately as a teacher of, of med Zen meditation, I had been taught that such experiences were what uh, Japanese Zen Buddhists called makio or illusion. And the received wisdom was that you know, when they occurred, like in deep meditation, if you had some sort of visionary experience, you would immediately just dismiss it, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't cling to it. You wouldn't pay attention to it. You know, maybe you just sort of stare it down. So mm -hmm. I will say that I will say that um, on the night of June 16th, 2011, when I got up in the middle of the night to go for my walk and a, I felt a hand on my right shoulder. And a voice, a male voice, spoke directly into my ear and said, don't go out tonight. Uh, stay inside. Be calm and very, very still. A later reading about apparitions, I learned that oftentimes uh, some figure would appear prior to the at least the first appearance of Our Lady uh, to prepare you for it. And I was glad that that happened. Uh, but I didn't at that time, you know, I'd read, read none of that literature, had no idea what was happening but I'd never heard a voice before, not like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so I decided to honor it, and I positioned myself on uh, the couch in our downstairs living room by the window. It was in the dark, and I meditated. I knew how to do what the voice had told me to do to get very calm and still inside because I'd been a Zen Buddhist monk, so I did that. And I, I stayed in that state for about 40 minutes until I sensed the presence of someone right beside me in the room. And so I opened my eyes and first I saw two reed stalks blowing in the wind. It was as if I was in the middle of a marsh, maybe. And the house had disappeared. There was just darkness. And there were just these two reed stalks blowing in the wind. And then they vanished. And in their, in their place was the face of a girl of about 17 years old, a roundish pale face, freckles around her nose, auburn, uh, uh, auburn short cropped hair, hazel eyes, and an X of black electrical tape over her mouth. And uh, I saw her and, you know, my first impulse on seeing this was, oh, yeah, this is what the Zen masters taught me. This is Makyo. And so my first impulse was to stare her down. And that lasted all of about three seconds. And then, you know, I, I like to think, well, that was, I, you know, I'd stop being a Zen monk. <laughs> I'd stop being a Zen monk 21 years earlier, right? It had been 21 years old, earlier, 21 years since I had been responsible for a monastery, since I'd been like a head monk or, uh, you know. And, uh, but, you know, it, you can take the boy out of the monastery. It takes a lot longer to take the monastery out of the boy. So well, as, as, that, as, that moment was the death of my Zen career. 
Because what I thought was, <laughs> I thought, well, the Zen masters were wrong. This is not illusion. I thought, I thought, I looked at her face and I thought, she is realer than anything I've ever seen. And if she's illusion, that means I'm less than illusion, right? This can't possibly be an illusion. And no. so I did what I think anyone would have done in that situation because she clearly wanted the tape off of her mouth. I had no idea how it had gotten on there, who had put it there, or, you know, but it was clearly there to silence her. And so I reached forward and careful not to touch her body because I had no idea. I, I was in unfamiliar territory. I had no idea what would happen if I touched her. I was uh, afraid, I think, to touch her. And I reached out and I, I grabbed the corner of the tape and I pulled it back from her lips. I could feel it pulling against her skin. And she gave a great gasp as if, uh, as if she hadn't been able to breathe. And I thought she would say something, but she didn't. And I started to speak and she shook her head, said, no, nothing can be said. And I just looked at her, uh, you know, for I, I don't know how long. And we just looked at one another. And then finally, the Zen part of my brain won out. And I closed my eyes and went back to meditating. And when I opened them again, 40 minutes later, she was gone. But wow. after that, she was always there. Uh, I could feel her presence even when I couldn't see her. I didn't see her all the time, but I could feel her presence. And uh, when I woke up in the morning, you know, I could feel her right there. And she's been there ever since. And she wow. began to speak. Even, to, even today? Even today, yeah. Wow. Two, two, weeks, two weeks later, she began to speak. And then eventually uh, she began to, um, you know, to give the messages that we share on Way of the Rose on the 16th of every yes. month. Uh, and the gospel according to the dark was given that first year, uh, which is the, the what you read at the beginning of, of, uh, of the show. Uh, those last three pages of the book, the gospel according to the dark, that was uh, dictated uh, later that same uh, year in, in the fall, sometime in October. I don't know the exact date. And uh, she appeared and, and dictated that to me. And I don't have any memory of writing it down. Mm. Uh, but when I when it there was it over, is. when it was over, I I I, I saw that that there was a notebook next to the bed, and uh, the words I had written the words down, and it was my handwriting, mm. but I, I know, didn't write them. It's it's um, when I read books, I, I'm I'm a psychic intuitive. Mm. I do all of that type of stuff. Yeah, and when I read books, sometimes something just rivets in my body because they're so deep and true. Yeah. And this could be something very intellectual, like, um, for example, The Gene Keys by Richard Rudd. That book rivets yeah. in my body because it's yeah. so true with the knowledge it has. Yeah. However, when I read this book, it goes into something so profound, like you've crossed into over to a place that is very unique and special. And, you know, as I read this book and contemplate it, what it teaches me is that there's important information here that can help me find my own path. My path is not Clark Strands. It's really my own. Yeah. But this book has given me some real gems on how to incorporate that. 
and, and, and how to take concepts and apply them to my own life. You know, whether you're walking in the dark or uh, taking some of these concepts, something will likely pop up for you to enhance your spiritual journey. So mm. I'm a big advocate. I'm a big fan uh, with all of this. Um, it's an amazing book. And uh, it's just an amazing family. Uh, <laughs> you have your wife, Perdita, who has Take Back the Magic uh, yeah. and other texts that are really great. She was on the show last month. You have a daughter, Sophie Strand, who wrote The Madonna's Secret. It's just yeah. been published and out. And I'm reading that. And she'll be on this show next month. So wonderful. We're, we're taking this big <laughs> journey to the Catskills on becoming quantum conscious and learning all about the strands. Uh, your wife told me, because uh, I always ask authors, well, who do you recommend? She's like, why can Sophie and gave me some <laughs> other people to, to ch ch check out? And I have to mm -hmm. say Sophie's book, uh, Sophie Strand, uh, the uh, Madonna secret is profound. Yeah. I, I don't know how she got all of this information, but it's really good. It's and a mystery. You, it's, it's an amazing book. Uh, and and uh, just to FYI. Uh, so I want you to think about this for just a second as I give my closing um, closings. But, you know, just a minute of any type of advice and guidance that you can give uh, the listeners today uh, to send that voice out. And as you contemplate that, I'm going to say that this is Clark Strand and his book is Waking Up to the Dark. And you can find his book and all about Clark at www.wayoftherose.org. Wayoftherose.org. Uh, this is Bart Sharp and Becoming Quantum Conscious. At United Public Radio and UFO Paranormal uh, Radio Network. And we are on Roku, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and other venues. Just go into UPRN to find out about us. And next week, we are going to have a very special uh, guest. That would be Raymond Grace. Raymond Grace is probably the most renowned. Uh, pendulum or um, teacher in the United States that I know of, he calls it dowsing, but he is a dowser of magnitude. And so it'll be an entertaining hour uh, about Raymond Grace next week. I'm just really crazy about having him on the show. So um, what would you tell the people out there? Give them a minute of advice or guidance. Well, Bart, you know, you told me that you've spent a lot of time in southwestern France, right? Yes. Yeah. So have you ever visited any of the uh, Paleolithic caves, the painted caves? <laughs> spent a lot of time in them, dude. Oh, uh, aren't they? They're amazing. You know, Perdita yeah. and I journeyed to the Dordogne region to uh, visit those caves. Uh, and we wrote about them in the, mm -hmm. the Way of the Roads. Yes. I remember. You know. Some of them are caves, but there are also these uh, escarpments or rock outcroppings, right? That are just places where the rock, and there are a lot of them in that part of the world, where the rock sort of juts out and forms a sort of a natural roof. 
So it's mm -hmm. sort of like an open air tent that it creates. Yes. And human beings lived in these uh, under these escarpments that were they were partially protected from the elements for you know as long as as we've been walking upright we've been living in these escarpments right under these little rock ledges. Yes. Well, I like to think of those as the like the being like the shallow caves or the first retreats that human beings uh, went to in order to meditate right or to pray. These are probably the very first places where people, uh, human beings engaged in what we would call today spiritual practice. But you can create that shallow cave very easily in your own body just by lowering your eyes a little bit, lowering your lids. You know, you see pictures of the Buddha, right? And his lids are, are, are only half open usually, letting in less light. So this is a very simple thing that anyone can do wherever they are at any time. You can just, you can just close your eyes about half the way and you're, you're, you're like, it's like you're under one of those old escarpments. It's, it's mm. you've created, you've got a little bit of a foothold even on the brightest day. Uh, even in situations where your rational mind and your anxiety and your planning and your to-do list are, are, are just like, you know, dogs nipping at your heels, right? Trying to get your attention and dri drive you this way and that. You can stop and do that and just breathe. It's easier yes. than meditation because there's really no goal other than to create a little bit of uh, a slightly dimmer world, right? Where things are a little less certain, where you're open to mystery and where the uh, you can begin to attend to the uh, voice of the divine, which is always speaking within you. Yes, it's a moment to moment process for us all. And we wanna put string as many of those moments and minutes together with this attention to become greater conscious. And we gotta go. Thank you so much, Clark. It's been a great pleasure being well, with you today. Thank you so much, Bart. Perdita had wonderful things to say about you, and now I understand. Thank you so much yeah. for having me on your show. Thank you so 